agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Fact Totem, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay. Good morning, Mike. Hey, hey how are you? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm, I'm uh, good, good to be, uh, happy to be here this morning. You know, before we get started with our with our main stories, there's one thing I wanted to mention. I forgot to tell you this when we were talking before we started recording, but I think we should just say a word uh, to acknowledge the passing of uh, Elijah Cummings, who uh, who died this week. And of course, he was a very important and influential Democratic congressman from from Maryland and also uh, uh, an opponent of President Trump, a fairly fierce opponent, I think it would be be safe to say and they had some yeah. they had some contentious exchanges for sure but i will give to give credit where credit is due president trump uh, put out a nice tweet about uh, about representative cummings and so good for donald trump it's always nice when he can sort of raise below his normal lover level on twitter <laughs> but uh, uh uh let's not make this about donald trump elijah cummings was a was a great man he did a lot of, i think he did a lot of good for some very important causes and he will be missed well there, there were a lot of uh tributes coming from uh republican members who mm-hmm. uh, served with him and and sort of indicated that and one of the things that, that struck me was that uh uh one particular congressman said they they never had a, a a harsh word outside of committee uh that that with cummings it was you know it was there was the business it was the, <laughs> it was the job to do and then there was there was you know personal afterwards uh but that uh, he could be a a vociferous opponent um, but he didn't make it uh, yeah. personal with with those other committee members. So. Kind of leave, leaving think, on the field. That shows, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's yeah. that's we we could use a lot more of that for sure. And 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 all, I mean, I guess the other the other piece is that uh, he is one of the um, remaining, not remaining anymore, uh, but uh, last of the generation uh, of of uh, leaders who really participated in the civil rights movement mm-hmm. were, were really part of part of it and and uh, desegregating and um i think that's 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 something that is is also lost there was an institutional memory there um and and sort of a the fact that that it, this wasn't just abstract or this is he actually lived it uh um participated in it got it got beat up for it uh you know literally um so yeah, yeah. absolutely all right well i i think uh, jay we're uh, we're going to actually formally open the show with uh, yeah. it's a turkey right uh syria yeah, yeah. all that so kind our, of stuff yeah our first our first story now we've had this has been kind of a, a crazy week and uh hopefully i've i've uh will be able to capture in my my summary what we're, we're going on but uh continued uh fallout from the u.s with uh, withdrawal uh of troops from northern syria um uh, as you recall we had about a thousand troops in uh, northern syria uh protecting um there was a kurdish group the ypp um uh trump sort of abruptly uh i shouldn't say abruptly there was the the uh at one point he he had uh, signaled earlier that we were going to get out but uh the pace was a surprise to everyone um what followed uh, from there was of course a turkish invasion um attack on these uh, uh kurdish areas um followed by a trump declaration of sanctions against uh, turkey uh followed by a uh 
uh, offer of Mike Pence uh, to go and visit Turkey uh, to negotiate a, a uh, resolution, which was uh, then denied, followed by a ceasefire, which didn't necessarily really hold. Um, uh, then followed by a, uh, condemnation of the move by the house, uh, by a 354 to 60, uh, vote, um, with, uh, two to one Republicans, two to one going, uh, against the, the Trump decision of pulling out of, of, uh, of Syria. Um, uh, and, and where we're left is, uh, the Senate, uh, Lindsey Graham and, um, um, Chris Van Hollen, uh, Chris, uh, I think, Chris, yeah. Chris Van Hollen of Maryland uh, have prepared a bill that is going to be uh, stronger sanctions against Turkey, including uh, specific Turkish officials uh, like uh, uh, the Turkish leader Recep Tayyip er- 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 Erdogan. Yeah, Erdogan. It's, it's a I, tough I wanna, one. I just want to say it. Yeah, I reverse. I always reverse the G. I, I, I get that. Yeah, but, absolutely. He's a weird one, but uh, I wish he would be gone for so many reasons. That's only one of them. Yeah, but yeah, but he, so he, so I mean that that I guess I guess takes us to there's there's two questions that that I think we we should talk about and, and the first is one there's the the big international uh, strategic implications of this um, and I'm I'm interested in in your thoughts on just on a basic right thing wrong thing uh, or right thing done wrong way uh, pull out of Syria. Uh, and then the the second question is the the American political fallout from it. Yeah. Well, you know, Jay, if I understand it correctly, this is sort of how I encapsulate it or see it in my head. Uh, Trump talks to Erdogan, and Erdogan says, "Well, we're going to invade uh, northern Syria," and Donald Trump says, "Well, I don't think you should do that." And Erdogan says, "Well, we're going to do it anyway," and Donald Trump says, "Well, okay, I guess we'll we'll pull out our forces then." And right, right. away, I was like, "Whoa." Boy, that's a signal of pretty intense weakness and capitulation. And then after we pull out our forces and say, well, we pulled them out, but we said, don't do that, even though we Please knew it was invade. coming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we'll move our forces out so because we know you're going to. And then after the invasion and the humanitarian crisis, Trump threatens some really kind of some really kind of weak tea sort of sanctions, which are then which are then uh, halted for a ceasefire that isn't really a ceasefire under conditions that essentially Erdogan gets everything that he wanted for, uh, for, for essentially nothing. So uh, it's, it's hard to imagine the United States looking weaker out of this. I mean, a, a capitulation of this magnitude to Turkey, to anyone, is I think it sends us just a horrible signal. And that's, I think, why you saw that, you know, 354 to 60 vote. And there hasn't been a vote in the Senate because McConnell said we want something stronger than what the House did. Right, so, right. I mean, yes, you and Mitch McConnell were very much on the same yeah, side. You know, this, I, I mean, it's always <laughs> I, I got to say when Mitch McConnell and I are on the same side or something, I tend to think there might be something to it, you know, or we're entering bizarro world. But to me, there's no way to spin this as anything but a colossal foreign policy blunder. Well, um, in the interest of, of playing devil's advocate, I'll try. Go ahead. Uh, um, no, I, I, I agree with, with pretty much everything you said, that this was uh, handled colossally uh, poorly. Um, uh, the I guess I get, I get down to the, the root question of, um, is this a matter of this was going to happen sooner or later and we're better off just getting out 
uh, having sort of tearing the Band-Aid off. Um, because otherwise, uh, what what were the alternatives? And and you and I have talked about this for for a year now. I mean, my sense is uh, the U.S. really lost uh, its its uh, interest in Syria, ceded to the, to the Russians, probably uh, you know back during the Obama administration. Um, we sort of did fig leaf things of putting in a couple thousand soldiers here and there uh, uh, under the auspices of, of helping to, to root out ISIS, uh, in which the, the Kurds were our allies. Um, but but there was always this this tension where we have, uh, you know, essentially, you know, two allies, uh, one Turkey, one uh, one the Kurds, um, uh, one, you know, two friends who are, are fighting amongst each other and to the extent that one wants to bomb the other out of existence. Um, there was, there was no good, nothing good that we could do with a thousand troops one way or another. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, would, would, is Trump, was, was, would Trump have been wiser to, uh, Try to call uh, Erdogan's bluff. Uh, keep those troops in there, and you know he'll. Well, well, yeah, it, sure you're sure you're going to invade. Go yeah, ahead, well, let's see what happens. But, but isn't that? I mean, a classic Trumpian move is doubling down. But in this case, yeah. he didn't. He folded. Yeah. You know, and so to me, Erdogan says that, and your response should be, "You go ahead and do that. We're going to send more troops in, and if you want to attack the United States of America, buddy, well, you're going to pay for it. And the way to handle, I, I mean, I can, I can." See your point that well maybe it's a good idea to get out altogether. I don't agree with that, but even even if you, I did agree I, really, with that, but yeah, but, but but the way to do that would be then to work out some sort of behind the scenes agreement saying, listen, we're going to get out, but we cannot have you invade the moment we get out, and we cannot have Russian troops just still pouring in right. to fill the vacuum of our abandoned camps with these horrible images that are just, you know, the optics are, are, are tragic right. for us. So like on 1975, right? Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's not something and negotiating that maybe would have made sense if your goal is to get out and not look weak, but you know, that's not what happened. And so this was, even if the goal was to get out quickly, this was handled, this was handled horribly. And, uh, you know, I, and and I really think that also Donald Trump, to me, in, in terms of foreign policy, doesn't seem to understand a lot. But one thing he doesn't seem to understand is the concept of a power vacuum, which which strikes me as kind of yeah. odd, because it it kind of has that sort of zero sum logic, right? Our pulling back means someone else is inevitably going to step up, and we knew who that was. We knew it was going to be the Syrians, and we knew it was going to be the Russians, and they happen to be two of our, you know, our, our biggest opponents, at least in the region, and we just made it so much easier for them. And and now we have a situation where in the Middle East, the Russians are talking to everyone. I mean, my gosh, the the uh, the reception that Putin got in, you know, in Saudi Arabia and whatnot. Sure. I mean, they, they they want to be the power brokers in the region. Now, they don't really have the geopolitical oomph to do that, but we sure are at least making it easier for them to make a big play in that region. And that's why for for all the reasons that I understand why we might want to get out of the Middle East, I just don't think it's a viable option given the given the importance of the region. Yeah. Well, I, first, and, and you know me from my history, I am I'm, you know, to the extent that I, anything I think matters in particular, uh, I'm much much more on the uh, neocon sort of engagement yeah. side yeah. Uh, when it comes to foreign policy. Um, 
And, and, and I think that's that's also what is being evidenced by uh, this vote in the House and the actions in the Senate. And, and I think it's significant that it's Lindsey Graham, who uh, has been one of Trump's chief supporters yeah. uh, throughout his administration, um, is, is the one who's, who's, you know, sponsoring this bill. Um, but, uh, you know, here's the other thing that, that makes it difficult is you, 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 you can't spell NATO without uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Um, mm. And, um, you know, we were, we we're in this strange position. We were threatened to be attacked by our own ally. Um, and, and what happens if, if, if they do, uh, I think Trump sees things and I think you're, you're right on the, the power vacuum thing. He doesn't necessarily think like that. Uh, I think he thinks in terms of good deal, bad deal. If he sees something, it is, it's more of a business. And I, I don't know, I, this is sort of the armchair psych- psychoanalysis, but uh, sort of the uh, look if a business isn't performing, unit isn't you know get out of it, dump it. Um, you know that's that's what you do in the stock market. You don't keep uh, uh, sentiment sentimentally holding on to your your losers just because you think they're uh, they're going to turn around. Um, but but you so see, I think that falls apart because you also don't abandon a market when you know that your big opponent's going to swoop in and try to try to take up that market share. You know, so I, I no I no think, I think I, think I get what you're doing. In, in here. Business, you don't you don't you don't think I don't think I don't think it's it's a thing if you do abandon a market if you think you can't be competitive in it. Well, I I think you don't it's, do it. If, yeah. Well, again, you know, all of this I think. So many people are overanalyzing. I don't think Trump is thinking in terms of business strategy or any strategy. He has a conversation with some someone, and his gut tells him something, and that's it. And so, I mean, I, I mean, I thought that oh, and, and this is yeah, and it, it, this has been uh, Trump has been saying this for some time about he wants to get out of these, uh, as he calls, endless wars, which is sort of a parroting of of what the old uh, Democrat bumper sticker from the, the early 2000s was, right? I mean, um, so this is this has sort of always been a Trumpian sort of, uh, you know, again, the Jacksonian kind of withdrawal. But uh, I think the alacrity uh, in, of which it happened that seemed to surprise yeah. everyone, I think that's, that's the, the bigger problem. There may have been, if you have to get out, uh, there could have been yeah. a more orderly, more dignified way to do it. Um, and, but order, orderly and dignified is not Trump's no. strong suit. And not just that, but of course, uh, the message it sends for uh, abandoning the Kurds. The Kurds should be used to it. My God, everyone <laughs> seems to abandon the Kurds. I was going to, I was going to note you have like a special affinity for the Kurdish people, uh, dating back to I, I recall in 1989 international politics. You did a, a presentation on uh, the Kurds. I'm a fan of the Kurds. Yeah, I like, but yeah. but you know, but not only abandoning them, but also saying, well, you know, it's seven thousand miles away. Europe can deal with it. <laughs> that, and, and I think it was one member of Congress who said, hey, you know, the the people who bombed the or who took down the World Trade Center were more than seven thousand miles away. So uh, it, it's it's not necessarily all that great to be so cavalier about this sort of thing. So I, yeah, you know, you and I agree on this this sort of isolationist kind of fortress America thinking. That that was out of date even in the 1950s certainly that's kind of yeah. like that's like 19th century thinking and it's just i just utterly ridiculous and short-sighted and is ultimately to the detriment of not just the united states but the cause of you know freedom and democracy in the world which i think should should still mean something yeah i i'm going to throw one more again as a uh, devil's advocate sort of thing just to to look at the complexity of this, because I think it is more complex than it's being portrayed in the media. Um, and that is, this This is a dispute between 
Uh, one, an authoritarian strongman who certainly doesn't share our values. And that, I mean, Trump? Erdogan. Or, or that's oh, what I mean. I, mean, Erdogan, I wasn't sure who you meant. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, listen, I mean, uh, uh, Turkey does not share Western values in terms of, uh, it, it, it used to be more so, but it is becoming uh, less so. I, I think I read somewhere that, you know, Turkey has like the most per capita number of journalists uh, imprisoned and, uh, <laughs> you know, which, which is never yeah. a good sign for nope. the, the health of your regime. Um, uh, likewise, the, the, uh, YPP, uh, who were the, the Kurdish forces, um, may, may or may not be, you know, any saints either. Um, they're, they are, uh, a little terroristy. Um, uh, they sure. have ties to the PKK, which had ties to, uh, other terrorist organizations, but they were a, a, an ally of convenience in fighting ISIS. Uh, and the argument would go, well, listen, they understood going in that this was a uh, alliance of convenience for the purposes of beating back ISIS. Uh, and, and you know, this was, this was understood to be sort of a transactional arrangement, um, whereas uh, NATO is a more permanent arrangement. Um, now, again, that's the devil's advocate kind of argument. Sure. But I think it's important to, to, to think that this isn't just um, – there, there's no. – that, there are bigger a, things here yeah. than, I mean, Trump Trump acted dumbly and impulsively, um, but there's a bigger problem here, regardless of whether it will be President Trump or, or someone else yeah, addressing no. it. And I think that's a good point you make, because you mentioned transactional relationships, and that to me seems to be how President Trump sees almost all of our relationships. And that's that's very different, especially when we're talking about our relationship with, you know, Europe and, and well, especially with Europe and some other countries as well. And I think that's what a lot of a lot of people are concerned about that idea that that's not really at least entirely how our foreign policy has been. And, and we damage, you know, if, if other countries, if our main allies can't count on us and just expect it, uh, you know, that we're going to be entirely transactional, then all of a sudden, a lot of things, you know, fall apart and that's not good sure, sure. Uh, it's the, the the demonstration effect is what they yeah. used to call it there you go so yeah so well moving on uh, uh from that to uh impeachment this week um <laughs> and i'm i'm not sure if this is sort of a running feature um uh last week uh u.s ambassador to the eu uh, gordon sondland uh, testified behind closed doors um to adam schiff's committee uh, he, uh, sort of stuck to the, the story, um, and that makes it sound sort of nefarious. I yeah, it doesn't it though? I like it. Go ahead. <laughs> he sort of confirmed, confirmed, uh, it, what, you know, his previous statements that, uh, as he understood, there was no quid pro quo, uh, between withholding aid and any sort of investigation, um, uh, of, of, of Ukrainian, uh, uh, what, let's call it, um, well, either, either participation in the 2016 election or, uh, digging up dirt uh, in aid of a 2020 election. Um, uh, then uh, White House, uh, acting White House Chief of Staff, uh, then quite helpfully, uh, <laughs> Mick Mulvaney jumped in to say, well, no, it's uh, we do this all the time. Um, <laughs> and and there, there was a, uh, he didn't say quid pro quo, but he said that uh, it was tied to uh, investigations of Ukraine's role in the hacking of the uh, Democratic uh uh, emails in 2016, which I, I don't want to get into this whole thing because it 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 it's, gets pretty weird and complicated, sure, um, and a little conspiratorial. But the, the gist of it is that the the conclusion uh, that the uh, DNC emails were hacked by the Russians came from a company called CrowdSource, which Trump contends 
is uh, related to Ukrainian entities, uh, which has yet to be really proven. Um, uh, so there's there's that, and there was the push of of well, can you trust crowdsource because you know were they giving us the straight dope, and was it really the Ukrainians who hacked this? Um, it all seems a little academic, maybe at this point, but. Um, uh, Mulvaney then walked back his his uh, statement. He ran it back. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, and and I can I tell you I can see a little I can see a line here because um, this is what I'm trained to do, right? Uh, of saying that you know, look, I didn't say there was a quid pro quo. Uh, okay, let is, me let me let me would, stop you there. Yes. Mulvaney's exact words were: Did he also mention to me in the past the corruption related to the DNC server? Absolutely no question about it, but that's it, and that's why we held up the money. Now, that is the definition of a quid pro quo. We held up the money because of the corruption related to the DNC server. There is no way you can parse that sentence and not have it come out as a clear political quid pro quo. Now, that doesn't oh, relate I can, to... I can, I can parse the hell out well, of Well, yeah, well, that would be just your <laughs> lawyerly tricks, but any reasonable person. Now, now it's, we should point out that that doesn't involve the Biden and Burisma thing. He was, that's, right. I mean, he made that a clear separation, but still. And then he said, well, we do this all the time. So, And I think we do. Well, with, to a certain and, and not extent, not for campaign help. So the difference is whether it's it's you know whether he had the discretion to do it, right? If it's congressionally approved funds that are supposed to go and by a certain date, and you have the discretion to hold them yeah. up or you don't. But so um, and, and then you know, and you mentioned that Sondland testified that there was no quid pro quo. Actually, I believe he testified that that is what he was told by he President told, Trump, exactly. but he yeah. didn't know if that was actually the case or not. He was just repeating what he was told by the president. So right. basically well, texted by the president. Yeah. So. 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 And I think that's important. He also Sondland mentioned right that, you know, he he was he didn't even realize that the Bidens were connected to uh, Burisma, which is obviously right. ludicrous because there's no plausible deniability for him because Giuliani was been pushing this for a long time and it's been all over the media especially the right-wing media so essentially his defense is i was incredibly out of the loop and totally uninformed and like the worst dumbest diplomat ever and uh that uh that was just a ridiculous defense but i guess it's all he had he was too busy redecorating the residence apparently that was you know the other thing all all we know from from sondland is what was in his prepared statement that was released yeah. Uh, yeah. So we don't know to the extent there were follow up questions. We don't know to the extent he I mean, we assume that he said everything that was in the prepared statement. Yeah. So um, let me let me see said he hasn't. But let me see, Jay, if I kind of have a, a good handle on this. So you mentioned the closed door hearings, but we know in these hearings that uh, both Democrats and Republicans are represented on these committees and both sides, according to. You know, people who are in these hearings have been given unlimited question time with witnesses. It's like I think they said an hour, an hour back. So this is in-depth stuff and both sides have an opportunity. And, and, And to me... Right away, the, this call that this is this is illegitimate. There's no due process. Uh, that that I think is the grasping at straws. There essentially, I mean, this is a, a you know an initial investigation, and the, the idea that you would have you would let everyone know, say, well, what's what's his story? I want to make sure I have this, so that way we can coordinate our you know coordinate our message and that sort of thing. Can you imagine if the police? 
provided that sort of due process, you know, in their investigations. I mean, it would, you know, it's it's a ridiculous argument, I think, especially given the fact that multiple Republicans are there and have an opportunity to question these witnesses. So uh, that to me is uh, is an illegitimate argument, actually. Well, I'm, I I think you're I think you're maybe you're looking at it the wrong way. And I, my argument isn't uh, that it's the process is illegitimate because there's somehow uh, no due process. Okay. Um, but the I think the the issue is um, this isn't a criminal trial. This isn't a grand jury. The the uh, jury that you eventually have to uh, convince is the American people, and. If you're proceeding behind closed doors uh, and sort of leaking things selectively, uh, there's going to be a lot of suspicion that, that look, is this really something important or is this just political shenanigans? I think if you want to, and I'm not saying it's, that makes the process illegitimate, um, but I think it certainly does, uh, it, it, it's, it's bad optics, right? Okay. I if, this is something that, if this is something that is so important to our nation, to hear all this, to know all this, to find out what's going on. Um, but uh, we're not going to let the press in. I agree with I, you. you. Know, I guess yeah. what, what's, what sign does, what does that message, does that send? And I think the message it sends is this is political uh, and, and we're going to, you know, it, it's just a, uh, a Democrat is trying to play gotcha. Republicans trying to protect them. Um, I agree with you on the public, on how people who are inclined to perceive it that way, that makes it easier for them to do that. But I think you would agree with me that uh, you can get a lot more real work done if you don't have the cameras on you all the time and are concerned sure. that every single thing you say is going to be used by your political opponents in a re-election campaign. And I think that's Abs- why they're absolutely. doing it. And, and but some that's parts, what makes, of, but that was that what makes that's what makes democracy tough. I mean, well, yeah, yes. yeah, the, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I, I I agree with I agree with you on that entirely. Um, and you know there was also right this report that from Mitch McConnell right telling the Senate to expect the trial before Thanksgiving, and yep. then you know maybe we can get a motion to dismiss before Christmas, and uh, I guess McConnell would want that because it now he's saying to hunker down. Yeah, because because Pelosi responded to that by saying, "Ah, you know, we're not really working on the uh, on the on Mitch McConnell's time frame here." So, uh, so yeah, I think that was. Uh, I'm not really exactly sure what the what the point was in that. So, you know, and, and like you, there there are a lot. We don't know a lot of things at this point, right? And we are right. just getting sort of these secondhand accounts, what the prepared statements are, and I think that's important. You know, uh, it, it seems to me that. What I can glean at this point is multiple writ- multiple witnesses have testified or at least prepared remarks saying essentially that U.S. foreign policy toward Ukraine was being conducted not so much by the professional diplomatic staff, but to what really is sort of an unusual degree by what have been called the three amigos. Someone who is a... Right. Yeah. Sondland, who was ambassador to the European Union. And by the way, that doesn't include Ukraine. Uh, Kurt Volker, the uh, envoy to Ukraine at the time. And then Energy Secretary Rick Perry, who's you know resigning now. Um, right. And also, well, I mean, two of two of those people are, you would say, the typical yeah, diplomatic. Yeah, staff. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but but then also multiple witnesses have testified that President Trump's personal attorney, played a significant role in foreign policy toward Ukraine. And, and, and hell, you know, he's 
Giuliani said that himself, essentially. And this yeah. is something that apparently caused a lot of tension because, you know, your personal attorney is not supposed to be an agent of U.S. foreign policy. In fact, I believe that might actually be uh, uh, illegal. Uh, and John Bolton, um, among others, was pretty worked up about that sort of thing. So I think that's kind of I'm not going to say that's what we know, but that seems to be the story that's emerging based on these bits and pieces we're getting from the testimony. Yeah, no, that that seems right. And I, I yeah. would think that what uh, the, the the gloss I would would add was uh, Giuliani, it seems the, the from from what's what we've gleaned, um, the diplomats viewed Giuliani as this was the guy, the gatekeeper to Trump. Right. Right. Um, less, less so, I think, of Giuliani sort of running foreign policy, more of, uh, look, Trump eventually runs foreign policy, but in order, but he, he won't, he won't believe any of us or trust any of yeah. us. So we got to get Giuliani's buy-in. Yeah. And Giuliani um, has all which kinds is, of- Which is, which is, little, which, which is a little different than, than saying Giuliani's operating foreign policy. Um, Though he seemed to be, he was pushing, but he was pushing a lot of, Giuliani seems to have been pushing a lot of interest of his own. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that sort of interconnect here. He's spending a lot of time in Ukraine more than, more than you'd you'd expect. Yeah. If if you were, (laughs) yeah, if you were going to do one of these, you know, like in a, in a, in a crime show where the detective has the little dots and the pieces of string connecting there, it would be, it would look like some sort of a nightmarish connection. Yeah, we really should. That would be wild, but, uh. We should like make our own thing and like do the strength. Um, one one thing I I do want to come back to because I think this is important, and this is maybe me just playing lawyer a little bit. Um, but on, on the quid pro quo, I I think you're I think you're incorrect. Uh, I think saying okay, um, we're not going to uh, release um, money because they haven't done uh, X Y or Z is not a quid pro quo. Uh, a quid pro quo is going to the Ukrainians and saying. If you want this, you have to give us uh, this information. Then we'll release uh, the aid. Let, let me ask now, you. Yeah, you can say that there's an implication there, but okay. but but it's the Ukrainians so far. It said uh, they didn't know the aid was being withheld, which is you know sort of it, it's if it's if so, there's not a very good quid. Let, let me um, well well let me let, I'm trying to understand what you're saying here. So when Mulvaney said that's why we held up the money. Yeah, but yeah, if you have to also look at the rest of that sentence, there was a lot of there's a lot of things that right. preceded. All right, the rest there's, of the there's sentence discussion was because there's corruption. There is uh, other engagement by other European powers. Right. So he said, absolutely no question about that. Um, past corruption related to the DNC server, absolutely no question about that. That's why we held up the money. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, you stick with your story that there's no quid yeah. pro quo. That's fine. You could make an argument. I think it is quite what, possibly, what I'm Jay. Is for, there, for, the, for there to be a quid pro quo, uh, it, it's like a, in law, it's a, it's a conspiracy. You need to have two parties conspiring. I see what you're this saying. Was, okay. This you're is saying, a unilateral right. decision saying, right. I'm not satisfied with with how they've performed or what they've provided uh, to us. I see what us. you're saying. Okay. Uh, therefore, gotcha. I'm withholding aid unilaterally. Okay. Uh, it's different from saying uh, or proposing 
uh, if you do this, I will give you this. Okay, it's so, I, yeah. I, I, that's no, maybe okay. a semantic no, no, point, but I'm, I am all Mike. I'm all about clear thinking sure. and making no, sure that I, yes. I see what you're saying. It's still yeah. corruption. It's just not quid. It's just doesn't fit right, the technical good, definition of quid pro quo because holding up congressionally exactly. authorized money to achieve personal political ends is still corrupt. It's just not okay. Fair enough. I will agree with you yeah. on that. I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> all right. Well, are we ready to move on, Jay? We are. Um, so oh, well, you know, other, before we uh, do, I'm so sorry. Before we do, I just tried to move us along, but I wanted to say one other thing. And, you know, some people are talking about support for impeachment and support for impeachment has been rising. In fact, now there seems to be a slight majority. And I know you don't follow a lot of media on the left. I do. Of course, and so well, I'm, I'm sort of forced to. Oh really. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know we could, but but you know, a lot of a lot of uh, on the left are saying, well, well see, yeah. now we can kind of move ahead. But to me, I wanted to point out one thing: it's not so much about overall support; it's more about well, support by party and support by party. So it's only like twelve percent of Republicans maybe support an impeachment, at least you know the process, but. To me, more importantly, and this is from I'm sure how Pelosi is seeing it is, what do the numbers look like in those, I believe it was 31 House Democratic districts won by Trump in 2016? Right. And I bet you those numbers might look a little differently because given the fact that we know, and I've said this before, but I, I wanted to kind of push back against this, this movement on the left saying, well, the public is with us. Well, the public in general doesn't matter. What matters is, you know, uh, how is this going to affect our control on the levers of power so that we can do good things for people as we see them on the left? And so I think it's important to keep that in mind. And I'm sensitive to the argument that sometimes you just have to do the right thing because it's the right thing and damn the consequences. And that's why a lot of people voted for Donald Trump, you know, right? Saying, well, yeah. the right thing is getting these judges in. And so it's a balancing act, but I don't think people should be so quick on on the left to jump to the conclusion of, hey, the public's with us now, because I think that's a pretty questionable uh, assumption. I, I would I would say I was actually going to maybe make the, the opposite point that uh, there there's everything is always connected, of course. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> the idea that, um, you know, Trump really couldn't have picked a worse time on this serial withdrawal um, to alienate uh, people who, whose support he needs. Um, uh, namely people like Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and uh, all those, those House members that, uh, that voted uh, uh, to condemn the withdrawal. Uh, again, does it, does it necessarily change how those folks vote on impeachment? Um, not at this point, but it's one of those, it, it's, you know, one more headache, right? It's, it's, you know, it goes from, hey, you know, we're with you, we're, we're staying with you 100% of, oh, geez, now, you know, now, so, yeah. Uh, I think there's there's a little bit of erosion. Um, uh, again, I, I don't see it actually changing any outcomes at this point. Um, but but down the road, uh, you know, you, you may look back at it and say that's when it started to change, I guess. So moving yeah. on um, about things that have changed. Um, the Democratic debate hosted yet another debate. Um, and at this point, you know, Mike, I, I think I, I would say that. Um, uh, Senator uh, Warren uh, seemed to be uh, appear as the front runner. Yep. Uh, she was treated as the front runner, and and in light of uh, numerous things, the, the Biden uh, flubs, some of the issues with his son, uh, uh, the Sanders heart attack. Um, she's she sort of seems to be the the last woman standing at this point. Um, 
and was very much treated by the uh, the event uh, coordinators as the as the front runner. Um, my impression was was Biden did not do himself any favors. There were some sort of gaff slips, weird Bidenisms. Uh, where you weren't sure exactly what he was talking about, where he said things about how he was proud of his son's judgment, and um, those those kind of again just general weirdness, uh, and uh, I, so I, I don't think that he moved the the needle uh, particularly well, um, you know. And you could say, well, he doesn't he didn't need to for a while, but he's starting to get to that point now. Um, uh, the other thing I found interesting was that uh, Amy Klobuchar has has sort of taken up the mantle as the um, you know, seriously, how much is this going to cost? Uh, wing of the party, uh, calling out um, uh, Elizabeth Warren on some of her proposals, such as the uh, Medicare, sort of a Medicare, her, her version of Medicare for all, uh, and uh, Green New Deals, and so forth. Um, and just explain, listen, this, there's no way that you can get this, pay for this program with the wealth tax or the the other proposals you you've you've thrown out there it's it's you know you please admit this would require yeah uh, a, a large middle class uh tax uh hike now so that's that's sort of my my just sort of snapshot i didn't go into like real deep detail on who said what um but uh that i mean i guess is that from your view are, are you seeing the same thing i am yeah pretty much i mean I, i've always felt that uh that Bernie Sanders is kind of the less detailed and more honest version of Elizabeth Warren, you know, in the sense that right. Bernie calls it socialism. Yeah. Well, Bernie's willing to say, <laughs> yeah, taxes are going to go up. And, and now Warren's in this position where she's realizing, I think that, you know, it's a lot harder to be the center of all these attacks. And I think she did, she did a good job and so forth, but you know, we can, we can see uh, some things coming a little more clearly in, into, into place. I think one thing that I noticed particularly was, uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg being uh, much more aggressive because I think he sees an opening here as Biden potentially falters. Now, uh, mm. it's important to say, though, still at this point, Biden is still the front runner in the polls. And yeah, while Warren has gained a lot, you know, there's still uh, a good, you know, six points or so, I think, between them at at, at at least at this point in time, and obviously still uh, by it's Biden and Sanders right now. Then there's a big gap, and then there's uh, or sorry Biden and Warren. Then there's a big gap. Then there's Sanders, and then you kind of have uh, Buttigieg and Harris. But and after that, it's a cast of thousands kind of hanging around right. it. You know, like two percent or below. But what's interesting to me is looking not so much at the debates, but looking at the state of the race in some other areas that I think are important. So, Oh, I think you know where you're going, because I was just going to say it too. But Well, well, a lot's been made about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Elon Omar's endorsements of Bernie. I, I guess that'll be helpful. Yeah, it can't hurt. But what I'm looking at is geeky stuff. I'm looking at who has field offices in Iowa and how much. Well, it turns out that... Uh, that Pete Buttigieg has 22 field offices in Iowa, and that's more than anyone else. Warren's second at 19, Biden is third at 17. And in fact, Buttigieg and Warren are tied for having the most field offices in the four, in the first four Democratic primary states at 47. And those, for, those states are Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. And also when you look at fundraising, you know, you have Sanders, Warren. Well, that was where I was going to Yeah, go. and then Buttigieg, because all of those things are connected. And so it seems to me that Buttigieg's campaign right now is just he's got a, a got a good amount of money and he's focusing 
intently on those first couple states because he knows that Iowa is a huge opportunity to exceed general media expectations, get that boost and kind of move that into New Hampshire. So I really think that he has of of anyone who's not named, uh, you know, Biden or Biden or Sanders. I really think he's positioned himself very well to be in the running well down the line. Let, let me put it in, in perspective with the actual numbers is that Joe Biden's campaign's cash on hand is uh, nine million bucks. Um, that is that is not much at all as these uh, presidential elections go. Um, then the, the uh, next one is um, Elizabeth Warren with uh, 25 million mm-hmm. um, and then uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, who has. Oh, I think in the third quarter, Sanders actually raised a little bit more than 61. Uh, oh, cash on hand. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. I just have the third quarter yeah. fundraising. But uh, now Warren and Sanders are helped a little bit by the fact that they they can use their Senate money for that. And that's Biden's been sure. talking about that. But but still, I think money's money. Yeah. The enthusiasm is. And, and if you actually look at the if you look at the uh, I think the one poll that matters a lot to the candidates right now, you look at the Iowa, the Iowa polls right now, uh, Warren slightly ahead of Biden. And then you have Sanders and Buttigieg basically kind of as a top four. And then there's everyone else. And so I really think going forward, it looks to me like it's going to be a battle between those four. And everyone else, I'm not going to say that, you know, Harris is, is, is trying, but I don't see anyone else really breaking through at this point, yeah. given what we know about resources and the ground game and all of those things that are so, you know, really important when you get down to Iowa and New Hampshire. Yeah. Oh, let me, let me, uh, updated numbers. Uh, Sanders, um, had, uh, 33.7 million, uh, Elizabeth Warren, 25.7 and Buttigieg, a surprising 23.4 million. Yeah. Yeah, he's been he's been doing really well in yeah. in fundraising, and a lot of people say, "Well, his national poll numbers aren't all that great." And and certainly, absolutely. But then when you look at his Iowa numbers, that looks a lot better, actually. So, and I think people need to understand how the strategy works. If you're not one of those top two big names, a lot of times focusing intently on those first couple states and getting that boost, that's the way you kind of bootstrap your way into the into the real running. And I think that seems to me to be the strategy and. Uh, as I mentioned before, I, I like an awful lot about Buttigieg. Now, Booker probably would be my choice before him, but Booker, I think, is not going to be a factor going forward. So I am uh, I am on the P train, I think, at this point, given uh, who I think is viable. All right. Um, I, I guess moving then our, our, our last story I want to hit, and this before is before we is, get to that oh, story. We got to do something before that. Though, yeah, yeah, we? yeah. Before we we have some new supporters, and it's been I've been off the show for a couple of weeks. I just wanted to take a minute to thank them. We have Jim, who's a new supporter on Patreon. Uh, we have uh, uh, Peter as well, and Peter wrote, "Thanks to everyone for the podcast. I look forward to your podcast to fuel my workout." Uh, I like this. I wanted to encourage Mike to lay down some pomp on Jay. So often Jay calls out Mike directly with some of his bad judgment. uh, But too often Mike lets Jay go wrong incorrectly. (laughs) My brother joined in with Jay going on the record that Hillary will run again. And I rubbed it in his face as he deserved. Mike, you need to call out Jay on how silly of an idea it was to think Hillary would run again. Democrat derangement syndrome. Am I right? 
Okay, so I guess I just called you out kind of indirectly I, well, on that, and Jay. I'll, I'll admit, at this point, it appears that Hillary Clinton is not running. Yeah, I think <laughs> safe, um, to, safe to say. But uh, but, and Peter, but uh, never say never. Never counter out. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> right. Anyway, he said, you guys deserve support. Thanks for your time and effort. Also, I wanted to send a shout out to Armand. And uh, he became a supporter on Patreon a while back from uh, uh, from Iceland, actually. Wow. And yeah, and uh, there was this whole thing about, uh, I tried to send him a mug and it couldn't go to Iceland, so I had to send it to me and then I got to go to the post office and have it sent to Iceland. It was a big a big mess and, and I felt really bad about it. Basically, it's taken like five months for his mug to get to him. <laughs> and not only that, but I totally slaughtered the pronunciation of his name. I, I'm sensitive to these things. And uh, I actually asked him, could you send me a recording of you saying your name? And he did that, which was so cool of him and then i realized that my mouth cannot make certain sounds and uh, uh and this was one of them so i just tried my best but he had a great he he said you know i've never been a person who pays for something i can get for free but after you guys decided to stop having ads on the show i felt the need to support my favorite podcast it gets me through the long and dark winters here in iceland keep on making them and i will keep on listening and supporting P.S. I'm looking forward to making the Politics Guys mug my main mug at the office where I can be found <laughs> yelling at my coworkers about how great your show is. So, oh, well, that thank was, you. That really means a lot. Yeah. Absolutely. And then finally, uh, I wanted to really uh, single out uh, executive producer Andra Masker. She recently helped us out in a huge way with our recent ad campaign. And of course, you know, enlarging our audience base is critical to keeping the show going in the long haul. And so Andra's support is it's, it's just extraordinarily generous, as well as I think an indication of how much she believes in what we're all about. So Thank you so much, Andre. We are proud to have you as an executive producer on the show. And finally, finally, Jay, I want to let everyone know that this week's bonus content, which normally is just for people who support the show on Patreon, we're making it free for everyone this weekend. So, wow. Yeah, you know, it's it's like a, remember like those free preview weekends that used to be on like Showtime and HBO and right, that's where we right. get so excited back in the day. Well, kind of like that. So all you have to do to access it is head over to our Patreon site. That's patreon.com slash politics guys. And this week, Jay and I are doing a bonus show where we're going to be listening or responding to a bunch of listener questions. We got all kinds of stuff queued up, term limits, sexual misconduct, the government corruption, if millennials should have any hope for the future, they should be just feel like they're doomed. So, uh, and Kristen's doing the quick take this week. She's going to be responding to a listener who can't understand her support for Donald Trump. And also, Still? yeah, you know, and, and why she thinks the democratic alternatives are all worse than another four years of Donald Trump. So if you're interested in that, this is a great opportunity to get a sense of what our bonus content is like. And again, just go to Patreon com slash politics guys for that okay Jay, i know we have one more one more story we want to cover this week so one more and this is it's pretty I mean, this is pretty quick but i i, I think that, you know as you you know we exchange uh emails sort of on usually thursdays or fridays about what stories we're going to talk about and you encapsulated this as the and it's it's a wonderful phrase uh, the Senate's failure to override Trump's veto of the revocation of emergency declaration. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How malicious. So it's, yeah. that's, that's, so if, if you're following along at home, um, what happened of course, is this, this goes to, uh, the Trump, uh, border wall, uh, funding, uh, where he declared a national emergency, which would allow him to spend money that he could not otherwise spend, uh, on the wall. So then, uh, the, uh, Congress, uh, came back and said, no, you can't do that. And, uh, essentially, uh, 
revoked that emergency declaration, which is it is it's able to uh, under um, under the statute under the, the emergency fund mm-hmm. statute, which Trump then vetoed, uh, which then goes back to the Senate uh, then to uh, to try to override the veto, and they failed to do that. So, long story short. Uh, Trump, Trump will still be uh, spending these funds, um, but the the vote was uh, uh, fifty three to uh, thirty six, uh, and President Trump lost uh, about seven votes since the last time this happened a couple months back. Um, so you know you can you can say is that uh, a symptom of of the, the turkey and the impeachment and and all this other stuff possibly, or just general Trump frustration. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, you Jay, know I wanted to comment I, on I that. I just wanted to get your, your thoughts on I, I, but I think it's just I love just sort of the convoluted nature of yeah. of this. That well, you know, both times there were fifty three votes to override, but the difference is back on May second, the first time they yeah, voted to override, it was uh, yeah. there were only six Republicans that voted against the president to override his veto. This time. 10 of them did. And that's 19 percent of the Republicans in the Senate. So, you know, I think you might be right. That's a sign of, you know, kind of an increasing pushback, at least on these sort of issues, obviously. But to me, kind of and the reason why it's still stated 53 is that back in May, there were only two non-voting, two members that didn't vote. And this time there were 11 and a lot of them were presidential candidates. So, you know, who were doing other things, obviously. Um, But, you know, this ties into a story we really haven't talked about, and that's the budget. Back at the end of the budget year, which ends at the end of September, Congress passed a continuing resolution, which funds everything at its current level until November 21st. Now, at this point, the Senate has only passed one of the 12 spending years for fiscal year uh, 2020, which, again, started on October 1st of this year. And last time, Jay, as I'm sure you recall, everything got passed fairly expeditiously because basically they just threw a bunch of money at everyone that totally destroyed the budget caps that were put into place a few years back in the, in the Obama years. Now this time the Trump people say he's not going to sign anything that doesn't have the additional $5 billion he wants for the wall, or maybe he will sign, but then he'll just do another end around on Congress by again, reallocating defense spending allocated by Congress in the budget using the emergency authority. And then Congress will, you know, disapprove of that. Then the president will veto it. And then the Senate will not have the votes to override (laughs) again, essentially. Now, at the same time, Senate Democrats are proposing legislation that would disallow presidents from reallocating congressionally appropriated funds. But it looks like they sort of already did that, though. I mean, well, well, I mean, yeah. And then, well, it looks that that's actually not going to come to a vote in the floor because McConnell's not going to let it. But it seems to me that that's an entirely reasonable measure to take. And in fact, I think you and I might actually agree that it's probably a good thing that if Congress allocates funds, that the president doesn't get to do with them what he wants. Yeah, right. And I, but I, my, my point would be, uh, we, that's sort of already the law, the exception being, the exception being the, the national emergency, right. which he's got to do, but then they come back. And so, yeah, I, 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 I would probably disagree with it, with it. We still ought to have some sort of national emergency, um, provision in there yeah but it's basically um, it's incredibly broad and so national emergencies yeah and this would this would actually be i think the problem is it's very difficult to 
define national emergency. And in the past, we've just sort of relied on the on the sense and decency of the president in doing that. And while that would be a big mistake this time out with this guy. But but and so if you can't define that clearly enough, then what you can do, though, is put in more constraints on the president's ability to act longer term when a national emergency has been declared. So still allow him to declare it, but right. not but allow- you have to get it reauthorized. Exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah. not make it so that it essentially requires two-thirds of Congress to do that, basically. So, yeah, and I think that's kind of yeah. what well, I, this- I, Yeah, I get, what, I get where you're coming from. It could be a, a 50% up-down vote to revoke the authority rather than a this situation. You would revoke it sort of unilaterally, but then that would be subject to a veto. Yeah, and so that's the problem. But wouldn't but wouldn't but wouldn't this new legislation be subject yeah. to a veto? Uh, anyway? Veto, yeah. So again, now are we kind of are we kind of back where we started from? Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, that would be that would be the big problem. Obviously, I guess the only way to get Trump to not veto it would be to say that well, it would only go into place uh, uh, for the next president, and then maybe he'd be I don't know a little more inclined to sign it, but but maybe not. So it's it's difficult because again, presidents are going to be likely Democrat or Republican to veto any legislation that constrains presidential power, which, by the way, the power was expanded because Congress decided in its infinite wisdom to give the president more of this authority. You know, this and the trade authority and a bunch of other things that President Trump and before him, President Obama and so forth have done only happened because Congress decided to pass legislation that, in fact, expanded presidential authority that presidents were all too happy to sign into law. Yeah, no, I, you're exactly right. Uh, that that said, I'm I'm still comfortable with the statute as it stands, because I think the the Trump um, funding. I mean, we're we're talking again about uh, five billion, three billion, five billion, um, and it's it's uh, compare given the 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 cost of of if you had a a real not to you know I'm not trying to judge. Trump's <laughs> declarations, but a real national emergency and, and uh, you know, couldn't approve the funds when you needed. Uh, I think that's that's just kind of cost of doing business. Sure. I mean, I think there's a difference. I mean, between... I think you put you put up with you put up with some like, you know, all right, that's an emergency because because you you want the uh, executive to have that authority and flexibility. Uh, right. when, when stuff does go really bad. Sure. Absolutely. And, but, but arguing that, well, there is an emergency. And so our solution to it is to build a wall that will take multiple years. Well, to me, then, then it's not really, well, that's not really the response to an emergency. Right. And, you know, when the president himself says, well, I could do this some other way, but I choose to do it this way. I mean, well, then, well, by, you know, but by, by that, by that rationale, yes. uh, is global warming an emergency? Well, I mean, yeah, and that's why I think you can make the argument that it, it would not fit under the definition of the national emergency uh, legislative authority that's been granted to the president. So while, while right. it's while it's a, a, a crisis in terms of emergency, how the legislation is written, I would say no, that a Democratic president coming in who would invoke the national emergency statute to act against global warming, I think that would be every bit as illegitimate as Donald Trump doing it to, to build a wall. Okay. Okay. 
There you go. I'm, Good answer. I, I like to think I'm consistent. Anyway, on that <laughs> consistent note, we will close. But again, as soon as Jay and I are done doing today's show, remember, we're going to be doing that bonus show, and that will be free for everyone this weekend, including Kristen's quick take. And again, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys to check that out. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can at mail to politicsguys.com. There's also a Facebook page where you can message us, and we post all kinds of stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We are also on on Twitter at politics guys. And Hey, if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, it would really help us out. Please do so on your podcast app of choice. And if you could say nice things about us, whether it's in reviews, ratings, or just to general people, just grab them on the street. That's fine. People Whatever. On the street, yeah. You know, don't, don't get too crazy about it, but yeah, we would appreciate it. Thanks so much. The executive producer of the politics guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, and Daniel toe. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski and Jay Carson. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.